Hey, Takistas, this is Victor Landa, and you are listening to the New Stacco Podcast Network. And uh, you know what we try to do with this podcast and with the work we do at New Stacco and with the Latino Daily is we try to open a space for dialogue about the Latino experience in the United States. Now, it, it doesn't matter to me where people are coming from. What matters to me is that I find something that's new and something that's transformative in what they're saying. So wh whether they're on the progressive side of the aisle or the conservative side of the aisle, what I'm looking for is people who have been working, living, and contributing and building the Latino community in the U.S. And to, to talk to them and find out from them how they see things, why they see things, and why they do what they do, and, 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 and glean that insight, glean that experience, and see what we can get from it. So with that in mind, I've been wanting to talk to Leonel Sosa for, for a while now. Now, I've known Leonel for many years. And when I say that, I don't mean that we're buddies. We don't hang out together. That's not the thing. We both live and work in San Antonio, Texas. And because of that, we would, we've been bumping into each other. We know of each other. I've known of, of his trajectory, his history, his work. Uh, and and uh, he knows mine because I've been involved in media. So we're not unknown. We know each other. And, and because of that, uh, I've had this interest in talking to him on this podcast because uh, d depending on who you're talking to, and I think almost unanim and unanimously, you're going to find that people would call him a legend in what he does. Uh, he is a master ad man because of his work in, in Latino uh, marketing, public relations, advertising. Uh, he is a consultant to presidents. He has been a consultant to uh, GOP presidents, Ronald Reagan and both Bushes, uh, both uh, George Bush father and son. Um, and, and he has crafted political campaigns. He has crafted uh, advertising campaigns. And he is an incredible artist. I spoke to him. I took my equipment, my, my studio in a bag, and, and, and I un unraveled it and, and took it apart and put it together in his studio on La Vaca Street in uh, downtown San Antonio. To, to give you an idea of what that was like, uh, it's, it's a studio. It's a, he's a painter, and, and he does these incredibly beautiful portraits. Um, and the walls are lined with portraits of, I would imagine, San, San Antonians and, and, and other you know, Texans and people from across the country. But as we're talking, there's all these, all these paintings of, of, of people's wonderful faces kind of looking down at you, watching what you're doing and listening to what you're saying. So it was, it was but very warm, very inviting. Um, and, and we had a, a conversation when I got there. You know, it's funny because he's, he's a communications professional. So am I. But there was a miscommunication, right? So I, I get there and, and he asked, so, so how long is this going to take? About three minutes? And uh, I, I was thinking, well, no, it's, it's going to be a lot longer than that. So what I said was, I'll tell you what. Why don't we sit down and start talking and we'll stop talking when it's not interesting anymore? And he agreed to that and we got going. Uh, throughout this recording, you're going to hear some noise in the background. You'll hear some traffic. Uh, we had company when we were there. Uh, Lionel has a, a number of, of beautiful little uh, Jack Russell Terriers, and there was one that decided he was going to he was going to uh, uh, be with us while we were recording. So he'll, you'll hear him kind of moving around and scratching around. But I think that makes this recording that much more interesting. So. Uh, with that, let's uh, let's go ahead and and uh, and listen to my conversation with uh, Lionel Sosa. Mm -hmm. 
I read the op-ed that you did, that, that you wrote, that was uh, published in Express News, and it seemed to me to be a very optimistic take on what's happening in, in this, this craziness that's going on with, with the election. You seem to have a very optimistic take on it. I really do, because sometimes as Americans, we don't realize how lucky we have it. Uh, I think through the years, we've gotten a little bit spoiled, where uh, politicians promise a lot and we demand more promises and they promise some more in the hopes of getting elected and it's gotten to a point where we think that we are poorer than we are we think we have it worse than we had it before and in some cases we do but I think if we look overall things aren't nearly as bad as they are, or at least, in my opinion, not bad enough to make people as angry as they are. There is a lot of anger. There is. It's, it's, it's all over the place. And of course, Donald Trump has been able to capitalize on that anger, and so has Ted Cruz. And, uh, and that anger uh, is on the surface almost of the mm. very conservative individuals that you don't have to do too much to rile them up. They are very easy to rile up. Why is that? What? I, I think, you know, they claim that they are angry because we're losing jobs to China. And yet, we buy the goods that are manufactured in China. <laughs> because they're less expensive. They're less expensive. Uh, we go to Walmart uh, or to other stores and we look for the cheapest price. At the time that we're buying a big flat uh, TV screen, we want the lowest price. Do we look to see if it's American made or not? Hell no. Yeah. We buy the lowest price there is. So we are happy to buy from the Chinese as long as they have a lower price, but we also want our high-paying jobs. You can't have it both ways. You have to choose. We want American jobs. We want the jobs to stay here. If the goods cost a little bit more or even quite a bit more, we're willing to pay for it. If we're willing to pay for it, then we can say, yeah, we want the jobs to stay here, but we cannot demand lower prices and demand more jobs with higher wages, the math just doesn't make sense. And all this anger started, and this most recent wave of anger started, it sparked when uh, Donald Trump announced his candidacy and he picked on Mexicans. He did. And there is this amazing feeling out there. Now, remembering who Donald Trump tends to appeal to and that appeal is the 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 anglo male comes first that has always been the uh, majority population in this country and uh, of course they're uh, they're uneasy you know the growing populations which are Asian Latino uh, people that look different from the way that they look, people that are moving into their neighborhoods and if not moving into their neighborhoods, at least with the images they get on the media, 
with Mexicans yeah. in the middle of the night coming across the border looking like terrorists. They get scared mm -hmm. and they say, oh my God, everything's changing and I have no control. Let's send those people back. I was reading a statistic uh, yesterday, day before, and it was really interesting to me because of the time frame that I was growing up when I was a kid uh, in, in the early 1960s, um, Latinos were 4% of the population and, and uh, uh, white people, the Anglos, were 85%. Now that's been completely, not reversed, but, but the, the white population is shrinking. It's getting older. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're not re reproducing as much. And of course, we know what's happened with the boom of the Latino population. We're now uh, 54 million. Um, I, can, I can see where their fear is based. That doesn't justify it. Yeah. It, well, you know, we can say it's not justified. And, uh, we, but at the same time, it's a fear that the American that's always been here has always had for the new immigrant. Uh, they didn't like the Irish when they were coming in. Yeah. They didn't like the Italians or the Polish when they were coming in. They didn't like the Germans when they were coming in. And they were all white, but yeah. they were foreigners and they were different. And they thought, oh my God, here they are, these Italians speaking Italian or these Germans speaking German. They even had their own German newspaper. They're changing our communities. We don't want them. There's always been a pushback on the new immigrant. It's very American. And yet, we realize that when the immigrant comes in, he doesn't change us. America changes the immigrant yeah. because they come here to be an American. They don't come here to try to turn the United States into Italy or Poland or Germany or Mexico or Central or South America. They come here today for the same reason that they've been coming in for 200 years, and that is for a better opportunity. Nothing's changed, and yet the fear is there. But the fear is even bigger today because Mexicans look a lot like Arabs. Many Mexicans yeah. look a lot like. In mm -hmm. fact, some people can't tell a Mexican uh, from an Arab. Yeah, no. Anecdotally, I, I when I go to a you know a, a, a city, a big metropolitan area, I jump on a taxi wherever I happen to be, I get uh, asked very often if I'm from Pakistan. Are yeah. you are you Pakistani? And people start talking to me in Pakistani. I'm like, no, no, I don't understand a word you're saying. Yeah, uh -huh. and, and, and it's because of the way I look. That's right, and that's what they're afraid of. Yeah, they are afraid that you or I might be a terrorist. Mm -hmm. And yet we know that so far, no terrorists have come in from Mexico. Yeah. We also know that the terrorists that there have uh, uh, been around lately are the terrorists uh, that either come in legally. That's right, overstay their visas. Overstay their visas, or are Americans themselves. Yeah. You know, McVeigh. That's right. Yeah, a right. Christian Domestic American mm -hmm. was a terrorist, and yet there is no big uh, call to get rid of all the Christian Anglo-white men when something like that happens. But if McVeigh had been a terrorist 
to come in from Mexico, you can bet that the whole dialogue would have been completely different. Completely different. And what's interesting to me also is going back to, to the optimism in, in your piece was the idea that I, I read recently that the, the idea of the American dream is most prevalent among Latino immigrants. They have they have this idea of coming here to better themselves, and it, and it it uh, surveys higher than than uh, uh, U.S. born people in general. Absolutely, when 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 a, when a, a Latino uh, immigrant comes in, they are the work ethic is incredible, and all of us have had uh, Mexicans, Latinos that are recent arrivals or even undocumented work. Uh, in our, our golf courses or in our own uh, gardens, in our own homes, taking care of the kids. And we know the work ethic. They are the hardest working individuals you can find. They are also uh, committed to being uh, responsible. Mm -hmm. Personal responsibility is big. They do not come here to get on the welfare rolls. They come here for opportunity. Some of them eventually wind up on the welfare rolls, but very few of them do. And they really can't take any welfare because they're undocumented. Sometimes, yes, they do take some of the hospitalization services and all those services that we have to offer in order to save lives. But by and large, they take very little and pay a lot in taxes, especially Social Security taxes that they never get back. So how did how did this negativity, this negative uh, portrayal, how did it take such fervent hold in, in today's politics? It started uh, with September 11th, 2001. Mm -hmm. As you may remember at that time, uh, George W. Bush had had his first uh, big uh, party uh, in the White House where you invite uh, a state of head to a state dinner. Mm -hmm. And his guest was Vicente Fox. Okay. And his first thing on the agenda was immigration reform to which everybody, including Republicans, were, were very, very, very uh, uh, looking forward to, to solving. 9-11 happened. Boom, everything is over. Immigration reform is over. Now we are afraid of people who look like Mexicans. And that was the beginning of this feeling that has been exacerbated by the fact that the Latino, the Asian populations are getting bigger while the Anglo populations are getting smaller. So it's a natural fear. I think, and I don't know that it's truly irrational, uh, but I do know that it is a fear, but it is a fear that shouldn't be there because it's nothing bad is going to happen. It's going to be okay. It's going to be just fine <laughs> as new immigrants arrive. It's going to yeah, be yeah. just as good as when the Polish arrived or when the Italians arrived or when the Irish arrived. It's going to be fine. They are not going to change us. We are going to change them. Latinos are the next generation of American talent. Latinos are the people that are going to provide 
uh, the welfare of the future. Mm -hmm. They are going to be the consumers of the future. They are going to be the voters of the future. They're going to be the leaders of the future. They're going to be the Americans of the future. And there's nothing to fear. So so in, in your way of seeing it, then, everything that we're seeing now is based in, in fear. Because I was re recalling, you know, back in the 80s when I was working down the street here at, at Channel 41, KWEX, which is the first Spanish-language television station in the country, mm -hmm. and, and you had your, your agency, mm -hmm. uh, your advertising agency. I don't think that in those days someone like Donald Trump would have had any chance of getting any traction at all. No chance at all. In fact, when you look at uh, the uh, at, at Ronald Reagan and George Bush speeches of the late uh, 1900s and early 80s, it's all about solving the immigration problem, about letting people come based on their talent, based on the jobs that we need, and have them come in legally, get green cards, pay their taxes, and be good citizens. The only reason that so many Latinos are illegal is because the quota for issuing visas, work visas, is much smaller than the need for the jobs that we have yeah. to offer them. So it's a bureaucratic thing. It is. Yeah. It is. All of these people could be legal mm -hmm. easily if we were to have a quota every year that says this year we need a million new jobs. People coming in, we let a million in. Next year we need 200,000 because maybe the economy has slowed down. Then we limit it. But when we need a million every year and only 400,000 can come in, we create, we create 600,000 new illegals every year. And, and now we're at a point politically where immigration and immigration reform has become this hot potato, this political football, this shield that people are picking up and saying, you know, well, you know we're not going to have it and there's no way it's going to happen. And well, Republicans are saying that. I yeah. don't think that uh, Hillary uh, exactly. or Bernie on, are saying on the, that. On the Republican side, there is this really mm -hmm. anti-immigration. Uh, yeah. um, and I'm a Republican. I've mm -hmm. been a lifelong Republican. And I have seen the change from the speeches that uh, Papa Bush used to make. Yeah and the speeches uh, that, uh, that uh, Ronald Reagan used to make and the speeches that George W. used to make uh, because I worked with all of them. And they were all pro-immigration. They were all, America is a land of immigrants. We need to welcome them, make sure we know who they are and make sure that they're legal and find a way to have them come in to serve our country legally. But we don't want to figure that. We don't want to figure that out because it's a lot easier to get people riled up by saying, I'm going to build a tall fence that'll keep everybody out that Mexico will will pay for. Yeah. Well, be, because politics is emotion, right? And the easiest, yes. most accessible emotion is fear. Exactly. Now, do, do, exactly you, right. do you recognize this GOP that's, that's alive and well today? It's not my GOP. You know, Ronald Reagan was once a Democrat that said, I didn't leave the party the party left me, mm -hmm. and I'm beginning to feel that way about my party. If something uh, sane doesn't happen soon, there's no way that I can vote for either Trump or Cruz. So I'll have to wait to see what happens first. Maybe uh, it'll all come crashing down and somebody sane will be nominated. Oh, you mean at the convention, a broker convention? convention. Yeah. Yes, at a broker convention. 
that probably won't happen, but I keep uh, keeping my fingers crossed, mm-hmm. and hoping that it will happen. And uh, if it doesn't happen, well, then uh, I'll see what I'll do. But there's no way that I, as a Republican, a lifelong Republican, can get myself to vote for either of those two individuals. And, and as a Republican, as a lifelong Republican, knowing the party as well as you do, is there anybody out there that you would say, well, you know, maybe if this person were to rise from, from yeah, the well, crazy... Yeah, well, Kasich, uh, you know, I don't know if uh, anybody remembers the very first debate when there were 18 people or however many 17 people, I guess, 17, them, yeah. yeah. And uh, they asked the question on immigration reform, and John Kasich said, we will find a way to work it out and have these people come in legally. We need them. Mm-hmm. And we need to be also very, very uh, aware of uh, how we treat the families and how, uh, how we treat them as Americans. And uh, he's kept that uh, position. So he's got a very open position. Of course, Jeb Bush also had that same position. Uh, but I would say that, uh, you know, Kasich is certainly somebody I could, could easily support. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing to me when I'm looking at, at the, the way politics is, has been playing out, mm-hmm. uh, especially with this, this, uh, this election, when we've gone through the process, the ones that have fallen out seem to have been the ones that, I don't know if we could or could not call them moderate, but they weren't as radical. They weren't as, as extreme as the two that are left. Right. Um, on the other side, um, there has been not a winnowing because there's always been just two. Mm-hmm. Well, there was at the beginning, there was a third one, right? Yeah. Uh, and now it's just two. And some people are trying to paint um, Bernie Sanders as a sort of a radical, even though he has just the same amount of uh, fervent mm-hmm. following that you could that you could uh, apply to George Bush. It, it, I mean, to, I'm sorry to uh, Donald Trump. It seems that that there is discontent on both sides. There is, and and uh, and uh, I I think that what there the other thing that people are angry at, and they have a right to be angry at this mm-hmm. one, is that Congress is deadlocked. Now, I'm angry about that. Republicans are angry about that. Democrats are in, uh, every day. but if we have a sane person, a sane person that can negotiate both parties and can get things done and get Congress working again, most of these problems could be solved. The big problem is one problem. Congress isn't working. Republicans and Democrats no longer want to work together. Republicans and Democrats are out to make sure that whatever they want, the other won't get. And this has been exacerbating again after the 2000 election when George W. Bush did not win the popular vote. Yeah, that caused a huge fracture. Huge. Many, many Democrats said that guy that's sitting in the White House today was not elected. He should not be there. Gore should have been our president. And by golly, we're going to make it as hard as we can on George W. Bush to get anything done. It started there but it's getting worse and worse and worse every year. You know, so much of what Lionel and I were talking about has to do with with ideas of moving 
the Latino community forward. And he's so based in optimism and that, that that's actually where I, we have a lot in common because it's about looking for and look and speaking about things that lift us, things that make us better uh, than we think we are. And I think that was that was the, the the key to what he was saying, and it's a key to what we do at New Stacco. It's it's what what brings me to my computer and to to do the things that I do for New Stacco and for the Latino Daily every morning. Uh, you should check out our morning news brief. It's called the Latino Daily, and you can go to newstaco.com. You can uh, click on the right-hand margin. There's a there's a, a link for subscribing to the Latino Daily, and what you're gonna get is a morning news brief uh, delivered to your uh, email inbox of the day's Latino news and information. So you don't have to go throughout the internet looking for this information. I'll do that for you, and I'll serve it up for you, and, and hopefully it'll be like a conversation so you start your morning with what you need to know about the news concerning Latino community. Once again, it's called the Latino Daily, and I invite you to check it out, to give us a try, tell your friends about it, read it, share it, subscribe to it, and you'll see how what we do with the Latino Daily, what we do with the podcast, and what we do with News Taco together comp, uh, are, are one large effort to lift the Latino community and to change the Latino narrative. With that, uh, let's go back to uh, the rest of our conversation with Lionel and, uh, and, and his, his thoughts about, more than anything, the brand of Latinos in the United States. We touched on that, so let's give it a listen. I'm really interested in your take on what I call the two-sided sword, the double-edged sword, where on the one hand, there is Trump, very negative, you know, causing a lot of consternation. But on the positive side, there are scores and hundreds and thousands of Latino residents that are going to get their citizenship because they want to vote. Mm -hmm. So it's it's spurring this activism mm -hmm. among Latinos because of this common foe yeah because of this negative guy yes um how do you see politics being transformed from this election forward well uh i i think you see what i see that there's going to be a huge latino turnout why because latinos have to have a reason to turn out to vote either they're going to be for somebody like uh, they were for Obama, mm -hmm. or they're going to be against somebody the way they are for Trump. Uh, and the m more emotion there is either for or against, the bigger the turnout will be. Uh, there's been a lot of talk, uh, accurate talk, about the low Latino uh, turnout. Uh -huh. And we saw that in the less, less election. Well, the Latino didn't really have that much uh, reason to go out to vote. Uh, Obama had let us down on immigration reform. Uh, the job rate was still at its lowest for Latinos that it's ever been. Yeah. So why vote for a guy that didn't keep his promises of creating more jobs and uh, making immigration reform happen. On the other hand, there was no reason to vote for Romney either. He did almost nothing. In fact, I could say nothing that I know of to reach out to the Latino voters. Absolutely, yeah. He could have done a lot, but he chose not to. Why? Well, was that a conscious choice? Was it just he just wasn't paying attention? 
I think it's the people you hire around you. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of it has to do with political consultants. Uh, if you don't have a high-powered Latino right as a hitman on your staff as a candidate, if you as a candidate don't have a top-notch Latino and you don't give that person uh, the power to act, then it's not going to happen. George W. Bush, I happen to be the Latino consultant for George W. Bush, and he said, Lionel, how much money do we need to make sure we get as close as we can to 50% of the Latino vote? And I gave him a figure, and he doubled it. Uh -huh. He doubled it. Uh -huh. And when others on the staff were saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, Lionel can't have this much money. I can said, imagine. Yeah. He, he said he's getting this much money. Yeah. That's what is needed. That's what you figure out how to get more out there. Now, if the candidate does not make this conscious decision, then it doesn't happen. Well, what happened in the case of George W. Bush? He got 44% of the vote. In fact, there was one figure by the New York Times right after the election that said 47% of the vote. Yeah. And, and then the, there was a competing one also. I think it was the, uh, the William C. Velasquez Institute put, put out the, uh, one that said that he had actually gotten somewhere between 34 and 36. Well, yeah. But it's still... Yeah. I mean, it, 34 and 36, I don't believe is heroic. I think 44 to 47 is. I think those were the accurate numbers. Now, I'll tell you the reason that the Southwest Voter Registration Project gets these numbers. Mm -hmm. Because they say, where are we going to find the Latino voter and what they did. They go to all Latino neighborhoods, to precincts that are 95 to 100 percent Latino. Yeah. If you go to these neighborhoods, you will find a lower income Latino mm -hmm. that will tend to vote Democrat. But if you go to the precincts that are 10 percent Latino, 20 percent Latino, which they never go to, that's where the higher income better educated Latino is business person that tends to vote Republican. So would you say the number is somewhere between then? I would say that the number, you know, in 2000 was more like 47%, maybe 50. Uh, he got 49% of the Latino vote as governor mm -hmm. in 98. So, you know. Uh, yeah, that's right, when he ran in Texas. That's right, when he ran in Texas. So. Uh, who knows what the real number is, yeah. but it is, uh, in my opinion, a lot closer uh, to the high 40s than mm -hmm. it is to the mid 30s. Is there any chance that the GOP will get reach those numbers anytime soon? Not, uh, not with the candidates that we, yeah. that, not with, not with Trump, and uh, not with Cruz. So, in in a world where you would be invited into that circle, and they would say, Lionel, here is Donald Trump, here's Ted Cruz. Advise them on how to get the Latino vote. Stick it. <laughs> You've already done all the damage you can do. There ain't no way that you can make a turn back. Use somebody else that'll take your money. I'm not taking a cent of your money. Well, that's very honest. Yeah, that's the way I feel. Uh, it, it, it's you. You've got. You gotta. When you're doing political advertising, you gotta believe in your candidate. Mm -hmm. uh, you gotta believe that they are the best that there is. And if you don't, well, you just don't vote for them. Even though I'm a Republican, because I believe in the basic conservative Republican values 
that of personal responsibility, of working hard, of going for opportunity, small government, low taxes, strong defense. Uh, and I will always believe in those principles. That's why I'm a Republican, because the Republican Party has given me more opportunity than I could have ever wished for in my life. They changed my life. When a fellow by the name of John Tower, who was mm -hmm. running for uh, U.S. Senate, Senate yeah. hired our agency to do his campaign. And at the end of the campaign, when we he won by one half of 1%, and he won it because the Latino vote that year went from 8% to 37%. Yeah. He said, Lionel, what can I do for you? I said, well, you can get me more business. And yeah, he said, I will. Yeah. And he introduced me to Ronald Reagan, who in turn introduced me to H.W. Bush, who in turn introduced me to George W. Bush. And not only did I get to work on that campaigns and go to state dinners and be at the White House with presidents and lunch with them, I was able uh, through those connections to do business with a corporate world so that our agency grew to become the largest, Hispanic, any, a, the, the largest Hispanic agency in the country. And it was all because of the doors of opportunity that the Republican Party opened for me. And, and now your agency and, and you and your partners from back then have been inducted or I don't know what the word is into the Smithsonian Institution. Yes, our work has, has, is now in the Smithsonian Institution in the Museum of American History. We're mm -hmm. very proud of that, of course. My partners Ernest Bromley and El Aguilar are equally proud as I am. And, uh, you know, it's something that happens just because somebody opens the door. The Latino talent is there. Mm -hmm. It's always yeah. been there. We are as smart, as hardworking, or even harder working than any other group. Uh, and yet, somehow or other, doors have been closed to us. But if you believe in opening doors of opportunity, as I believe most Republicans believe, uh, then I think it's the best choice for a Latino. Somebody, right now people are asking me, my own brother said, Lionel, how can you be a Republican? That's a good question. As if I were, you know, I don't know what, the terrorist or somebody <laughs> took my Wikipedia profile and, and, and messed with it and says that I'm an Islamic terrorist. Yeah. You know, so uh, things happen and, uh, you know, I'm okay. Uh, with with being a Republican, uh, I'm not even going to say I'm uh, an independent at this point. I'm a Republican that is not going to vote for the Republican candidate. And that pretty much says it all. That does. Is is there? Uh, do you think that as a Latino, as a community, now setting aside political parties, but just mm -hmm. as a community, are we opening doors for each other? You, you know what I really and I ask because what I really hate to hear is that that often used trope, that idea of the, the crabs in a bucket. Mm -hmm. I know, I'm sure you've heard it many sure. times before. I hate that story. Yeah. But, but I, I wonder, do you think it's, it's a true portrayal? I don't think that it's true. Uh, I think that might come a little bit because we are so family-oriented. Family comes first. Mm -hmm. You help family first before you help anybody else. And because we do think that way, maybe... We don't, have, we don't help another Latino that may not be blood-related as much as we would help okay. familia. Yeah. 
but I think that's a cultural thing that changes with generations. The longer we're here, the more American we become. The more American we become, uh, the more educated we become. Uh, the longer we're in, in this country, uh, the more we take of the American values of individualism. Sure, family's important, and I would never give that value up, but we have to also believe that we're important as well. Mm -hmm. Family's important, but we're important. I can't do for family if I can't do for myself. Well, isn't it a give and take, though? Because, okay, so we're, we're taking in this, this idea of individualism. Right, the rugged individual, bootstrapping, and all that good mm -hmm. stuff. But aren't we giving something back? Aren't aren't we transforming our the society around us as well? We are. I think that we are with with, with bringing those the, those family values back, of uh, bringing the values of helping one another. Uh, that's already part of the American value system. You know, uh, the Tocqueville wrote about that 150 years ago about how this country is so unique that the individual will help the community. That's mm -hmm. the American way, in the Latina way, the individual will help the family. And that's why I think sometimes it's misinterpreted that we are these crabs in a bucket that pull each other down. I don't think we do that, but I think it is perceived that we do. And then among ourselves, some of us be be actually believe that. I don't think it's as true as the common belief. And I think that there are uh, myths that get generalized. That's one of them. The, the other myth is th that I don't like listening to either is the myth of the sleeping giant. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've heard that so often that, you know, you, you begin to wonder, you know, what's wrong with this giant <laughs> that's been asleep so long? Well, because they've been saying that for decades. They have. And I think that there is a misconception or among our own people, mm -hmm. that many of us still believe that we are the victim minority. As long as we have a victim mentality uh, that believes that somebody is doing it to us, uh, the more we put ourselves in a corner where we give ourselves less opportunity. So, so paint that for me. What does that look like from your point of view? What does the victim mentality actually look like? Well, you know, I look at these professional, uh, uh, I, I would say professional Latino victim types that are raising their arms, the system is doing this to us. Well, in San Antonio, we've been the majority forever in the city that you and I live. Mm -hmm. In Texas, we will soon be the majority. In huge cities like Los Angeles and Chicago and New York, we are a huge part of the population and will soon become the majority population in those cities. So we have to quit thinking ourselves as minorities because the more we think the mi like minorities, the more we'll act like minorities and the more we'll act like we're being put upon. If we're being put upon, we have the power to change it now. And we've done a lot of good work by a lot of good people. I'm not saying that the Cesar Chavez of the world should never have been there. They should. They had a job to do 
when they have to do it. But now things are changing only because our numbers are so huge. And as that, uh, as that uh, change happens, that demographic change happens, so does the change in our minds have to change. Uh, we must think of ourselves as the majority population, as the new generation of American talent, as the future taxpayers, the future voters, the future consumers, and the future leaders of this country. That's who we are. And how does that look like in the workplace? What does that look like in school? What does that look like in, in, out in the world? Well, it, it varies by poverty levels. Mm -hmm. uh, the poorer a Latino is, the more likely that Latino uh, is to feel victimized uh, because there's less education, there's more uh, fear of being different. And, uh, but the more education that we have, the more we feel like equal Americans. And that's why educating our Latino population and making them college ready whether they go to college or not. Just the mere fact that each one of our Latino youth could be college ready and make sure that our public school yeah. system is responsible for teaching a poor child what is not taught at home, and that's college expectations. Yeah. The poorer the family is, the least likely they are to think about being college and, bound. And, the, and what frustrates me is that that gets painted as a cultural thing. And, and, and it really isn't a culture of don't go to college. It's, it's really a matter of they don't have the experience or the knowledge to give their kids about going to college. Well, it, I'll, I'll... Even though, this, even though the, the, there are a lot of Latino mothers who, who care very much, and fathers who care oh, very yeah. much about their kids' education and want them to do better, want yes. them to be well-educated, want them to go to college. That's right. The, the, the knowledge that college is good and that education is good for the children is there in the mind of every mother. Mm -hmm. But when they're extremely poor, they say, we got to help the family. That value takes over. If you have to quit school to help the family, Mm -hmm. That's an honorable thing. So besides, we'll never be able to afford college. And yeah. you can't get into debt to go to college. You'll never pay it off. So those are facts driven a little bit by culture, and, but driven mostly by poverty. Uh, you take an Anglo uh, that's in the poverty level. That Anglo is very likely to think the same way. Or an African-American anybody that is in a blighted poverty situation is not going to be thinking about going to college they're going to be thinking about trying to make a living bringing out a crystal ball last few questions how do you see this election coming out as far as latinos are concerned i do not have a crystal ball you don't have one no. you don't have one in the, in the back somewhere in a drawer i do not because you know as you know victor this election has been one that nobody has predicted. Yeah. Nobody yeah. would ever think that a presidential candidate could actually get up there and say, I could shoot somebody in the street of New York and people will still love me. Wasn't that outrageous? Well, and that's only one of, of many. dozens yeah. of outrageous things that he has said that so far 
have not had any effect. But, you know, today Wisconsin votes tonight. Uh, we will see if there's uh, a, a beginning of the end for Donald Trump. And then, of course, now he's saying if I'm not uh, nominated fairly, I'm going to run as an independent. I don't think he'll do that. His, his, he won't get elected, and he'll never be a Republican again, and on and on and on. Yeah. That's really impossible. That's an empty threat. That can't happen. A um, couple of questions. Two last ones. One of them is to pick your brain about the Latino brand. I'm talking about advertising, marketing, and just the Latino community in general. What do you think of the Latino brand as it stands now, and what, what can be done to change the narrative? Well, I think it's changing a whole lot already. Uh, you see so many uh, more Latinos in the media today, not as many as we need to have. Mm -hmm. uh, if you saw the Academy Awards, how many of the speeches that were made by Latino winners were in Spanish yeah. and the pride that they had, there was no uh, nobody complaining about that. We are beginning to see ourselves in a positive light more and more. Not as much as we should, but certainly uh, more than before. And Sol Trujillo and Henry Cisneros uh, have been doing a wonderful job with their uh, Latino the, donor cooperative. Yeah, the donor uh, collaborative. Yeah, collaborative. That's yeah. right. And they 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 want to they want to project the correct image of Latinos in the media, and they're doing a formidable job. They've had an editorial that's been printed in the Wall Street Journal. They've been on the Charlie Rose show. Mm -hmm. They have done a lot. Uh, they they are getting the word out there, uh, and. I, I do believe that at some point, uh, hopefully when we find that fear will not make, that, that being a promoter of fear will not get you to be president, uh, if that happens, we're going to be okay. Now, if promoting fear gets you to be president, we're in big trouble. Yeah, we are overall. Yes. Now, how does that work? Because you just sparked a question in my head um, about uh, Sol Trujillo, Henry Cisneros appearing on Charlie Rose, having an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. Not everyone in the U.S. has a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. Not everybody watches uh, Charlie Rose. Mm -hmm. um, so is, is this something that they're hoping is going to trickle down, to, to use that phrase? Or, or how, how is that? Or is that just the beginning? How does that work? That's the beginning, but it, and you're right, if it's only us talking to us, that is Latinos talking to Latinos, exactly. we have a limited yeah. audience. The audience that they are attracting and the audience that they're talking to is the audience that needs to hear this. So we, they're starting off at the right place. The okay. reader of the Wall Street Journal needs to know who we really are. Uh, the, the, the listeners and viewers of the Charlie Rose show need to know who we are. And the more that we get our side, our own comfort level, to let the rest of the world know who we are, and the better that we, do, the better job we do in communicating that, and I mean that by the kind of tone and manner that we mm, use, and yeah. certainly Saul and Henry are uh, the right messengers. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I think it's the beginning of, 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 of something big. 
Last question that I ask to everyone that I that I speak to my guests on on the podcast: What are you reading these days? What am I reading these days? Well, I, I read uh, I read different stuff. I uh, just finished reading uh, Killing Reagan, and this is the first of uh, the Killing books that I read. I picked one up off the shelf while I was waiting for my wife to shop the other day. I think at Walmart or someplace, and uh, we uh, I, I thought, man, this guy is a better author. O'Reilly's a better author than I thought he was. I, th I think he's a little bit too conservative, a little bit too radical for my taste on TV, but he's a good writer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, and he has some really, really good insights on, on Ronald Reagan. I'm uh, uh, reading uh, Janjaro's uh, book on uh, the train to Crystal City. Oh, Janjaro, yes, Janjaro. Yeah. Uh, and that's the story of the internment camp that they had in Crystal City, Texas during World War II, where Japanese and Germans and Italians uh, mm -hmm. were detained. The entire families were detained in an effort to keep the families together. But that was, uh, that was another thing that happened then in World War II under a Democratic president that said, round up all these people that are Japanese, that are Italian, and that are German, and put put him behind a fence, and they were there the entire duration of World War II. Recommend it? Oh, yeah. Oh, good, yeah. Good book. Good, good. I'll good put book. it on my list. Good book. Leonel, <laughs> gracias. <laughs> it was a pleasure as always talking to you. Thank you very much, Victor. Always a pleasure to see you. Thanks. And that was my conversation with uh, Leonel Sosa. It was, uh, it was one of those conversations that we started talking, and then when we ended the conversation, we both looked at our watches and were surprised. It's like, wow, that was really 40-plus minutes. That was, it didn't feel like, that, like it was that much because um, we were just so into the conversation uh, and, and exchanging ideas and just talking about where he saw things, and, and I was just trying my best to, to glean more and more information. And I think you know, I, I came away with it, uh, away from our conversation with, uh, with a sense of optimism, with a sense of, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not alone. Uh, there are other people who have the same idea in mind. And, it, and, and, and you know, it, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, because it, it, of the political aisle, because, you know, we, we're working in the community. We're trying our best to make things better. He's doing it in his way. You know, we're doing it in our way. And, and, and where we meet and we overlap, that's a good place to be. And that's what I liked about the conversation. That's what I like about Lionel. You know, you sit down and you talk to him. There is nothing but the man himself. What you see is, as the saying goes, what you get. There's, there's no uh, artificial story going on. It's just, it's just Lionel sitting there having a conversation with you. And, and before you know it, you're kind of sucked in and you're just you're talking and, and conversing and very comfortably moving forward. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, thanks again for um, being a part of, of uh, our new Stacco Podcast Network. I want to thank our producer, Alejandro Esquivel, and I want to thank also our uh, engineer, our audio engineer, Carlos Landa. I'm Victor Landa, and we will see you next time. We'll listen next time. 